All right, so I've been seeing it on all the shows. I've been hearing it on the radio, uh, just about every sports podcast. So I feel like it's our duty, Jordan. Uh, it is almost required uh, via the bylaws of any sports podcast. Uh, the fact that uh, we have to debate whether the Giannis Attendacupo block on the alley-oop to DeAndre Ayton in game four of the finals the other day, uh, whether that block is better than the LeBron block in the 2016 game seven NBA finals. That was in a tie ball game that actually directly led to a, the game winning basket at the other end, the uh, go ahead three by uh, Kyrie Irving. And so it is essential. It is required for us to debate this. Uh, or if you have any other suggestions for maybe a better block in NBA finals or playoff history, uh, who you got there, Giannis or LeBron in the SWAT category? Yeah, it's that good, right? Like that that play was that good last night where this is I mean, it's slightly manufactured, right? Because it is sports talk radio, it is sports podcasts. Like it is we are talking heads, and so this is a little manufactured. But that's that's the play anybody's gonna talk about, right? If if you if if it's as pure as you can get, like water cooler discussion, or like you're texting your good buddies or whatever, you're in the group text, right? It's like that's the play, right? You're sending gifts of that, you're sending memes of that, like it, it is it is that good. Like, just from a physical freak of nature. Like, I don't know how he pulled it off. Like, the LeBron one, I still think is better just because of the stakes, right? It is game seven of the NBA Finals in a game that is sort of legacy-defining for LeBron. It is franchise-defining for the Cavaliers. This was game four. Season sort of on the line, no doubt about it, for the Bucks. You can't really go down 3-1, and, and we all know how that kind of goes. But if, if you take the context out of it, like this is probably more impressive because LeBron, you could kind of see it coming, right? The fact that Giannis, who, by the way, I don't know, somehow didn't break his knee like two <laughs> weeks ago, right? Remember when that happened? <laughs> like for him to, to show on a drive and then see the lob go up and then think to himself, you know what? I think I can go get that before the other seven foot, 280 pound guy catches it and dunks it through the basket. I, I just, I was at a loss for words. It was one of those times I put my hands on my head just watching and it was like, oh my God. <laughs> the human beings aren't supposed to do that. Um, so it's still like 1B to LeBron's just because of the context. But if you take the context out of it, I don't know if I've ever seen a more impressive athletic feat. I mean, anything that Giannis does after what you just mentioned, the fact that two weeks ago his knee bent backwards like a crane or an ostrich, like he's not supposed to be out there after your knee bends 90 degrees the other way. Like I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, how is this going to affect his career, let alone we're going to see him in the NBA finals going back-to-back -back 40 burgers and uh, making one of the greatest blocks we've ever seen. Like just the fact that he's doing this is a reminder of how much of an actual – freak the greek freak is uh that said yeah i think you know both degree of difficulties uh, involved with those two blocks uh, I, I think are really really high right because lebron the chase down you know andre Iguodala had to sort of avoid the jr smith block shot attempt and you know maybe it was a little easier for lebron to elevate to block a guy his size than it was for Giannis to block a seven footer catching an oop above the square uh, but I think the timing of LeBron, right, sprinting full court, having to, you know, race uh, past everybody and time it so perfectly uh, and also keep the ball in bounds after the block sort of push it towards one of his teammates. Like that was pretty magnificent. 
Uh, I think though, Giannis, you're right. The degree of difficulty just by itself might be a little higher because of the fact that we're talking about way up above the rim. We're talking about an athletic seven-footer catching an oop from Devin Booker. We're talking about Giannis having to show on the screen on Booker first, and then after realizing that the pass had been thrown, was still able to spring up in time to get his hand in front of the rim. And then you have to do it without fouling. Like, that's crazy. Uh, to avoid the body contact, to avoid catching them on the arm. Uh, so, yeah, I think by itself, in a vacuum, I, I'm with you. I think we go Giannis here uh, as far as, like, the better block by itself. Uh, but context is everything. That's what sports is all about. And so I think the fact that LeBron's came in game seven, tie ball game, final two minutes, um, LeBron's going to be remembered as the greater play. Uh, but as far as uh, a block, man, Giannis, just crazy, crazy stuff. All right, so with that, we welcome you to this episode of the podcast, and we're excited because we're uh, we're going to make it a, a Maui-themed broadcast. Kurt Suzuki is going to join us. Of course, he is now a veteran catcher in Major League Baseball with the Anaheim Angels and a guy who has front row seats, if you will, uh, to this burgeoning stardom that is Shohei Otani. Uh, he is the guy who is uh, usually behind the plate in Shohei Otani starts, and so uh, we're going to hear firsthand what it's like to be a teammate of Shohei, the perspective of a guy in that dugout and just this global stardom and fame that is uh, starting to germinate here surrounding Shohei Otani. So excited certainly to get Kurt on board. Uh, it's been a while since we talked with him. He was one of our uh, first guests, I think, when we started the podcast last year during the pandemic. Uh, he was very early on part of, uh, part of this thing. And so it's good to uh, have him uh, scheduled once again to come on. Yeah, it really is. And uh, as you mentioned, a guy that I think is got the best seat in the house, right? To the best guy to ask when it comes to uh, any Shohei Otani question you may have. Well, we'll get uh, Kurt on to talk a little bit more about it in just a little bit, but let's get to our game time. And we'll start off with the NBA Finals. We talked about the block, but uh, that, of course, was just part of what is now an even series. 2-2 heading back to Phoenix, Bucks and Suns. I'm not sure if any team has really expressed an advantage here or has displayed having an advantage here. You just basically have two teams that won on their home floors uh, for the first four games of the series. Do you see any edge? Um, you know, it really is going to come down to the quote unquote supporting cast, right? I think we know what we're going to get usually from Devin Booker. He's going to look like Kobe Bryant half the time. I think we know what we're going to get from Giannis Attendacupo, he's going to go for 20-plus and double-digit rebounds, and he's going to impact the game at both ends of the floor. Uh, it's going to kind of come down to the other guys, right? And it's weird to refer to Chris Paul as an other guy, uh, but whether or not he plays well is going to dictate just how far Phoenix actually goes here the rest of this series. Chris Middleton drops 40 in game four. 15, I believe, came in the fourth quarter, and so a major reason why the Bucks were able to win that game. Uh, to me, it's kind of about those guys, the, the peripheral guys, uh, and usually those guys are the ones that perform better on their home floor. So I guess the advantage you'd have to say, just by virtue of home court advantage, would go to the Phoenix Suns, right? Yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I didn't think that Milwaukee was going to kind of take two at home. I, I thought this would probably be 3-1 going back to Phoenix. I, I like them going into the series. I still do, even though Milwaukee won their, their two and defended home court. Um, for, for the reasons you talked about, right? The, the stars have kind of showed up at, at different points throughout the four games so far. 
Chris Middleton's a guy that that's still, as much as people talk about him not getting enough credit, he probably still doesn't get enough credit, <laughs> right? With just how steady he is, how much they really rely on him, right? So much of the talk is about Giannis, but how much Chris Middleton is their, their best scorer, right? And he's their most reliable guy down the stretch. And you talked about the fourth quarter numbers just the other day in game three, or excuse me, in game four. And so because of the home court, I, I, I think it goes seven. And I think Phoenix wins in seven on their home court just because that's where the, the Cam Johnsons and the campaigns and, and Mikhail Bridges, like that's, that's kind of where they, they come to play, right? And the same thing when you talk about Pat Connaughton and Brooke Lopez and, and even Drew Holiday to an extent, like they, the old adage, like the, those role players play better on the, at home and they, they have done that through four games. And so based on the fact that Phoenix has two out of the next three at home, if we get that far. So, so yeah, I, I think if Milwaukee's going to win it, they got to go win game five and, and have a chance to close out at home in game six. But, but I still think Phoenix is, is eventually comes out ahead in game seven here. Yeah. There's this like weird misconception. I think that because Giannis is the two time MVP that he has to be the guy at the end of games, he has to be the closer for the Milwaukee Bucks. I don't actually agree with that, right? And we've actually seen, I think, a similar dynamic uh, in one of the greater dynasties in recent memory, uh, Shaq and Kobe with the Lakers, right? Shaq was the MVP guy. He was the dominant force. He was dropping 40 and gathering 20 rebounds. Uh, but it would be Kobe with the ball in his hands down the stretch. And I think that dynamic compares very favorably to the dynamic setup between Giannis and Chris Middleton. Like, it's okay for Giannis to be the guy for the majority of the game, but in the last two minutes, right, his foul shooting can be a liability. And so it makes sense for Chris Middleton, who is a shot-making talent, to have the ball in his hands. Like, that's not so out of the ordinary, and it kind of uh, rubs me the wrong way a little bit when I see people who are criticizing Giannis for deferring, if you will, to Chris Middleton. We've seen this before, and it actually worked out pretty well in those days. Yeah, and, and that's why, I, you know, it's not my original thought. Other people have brought this up, but we, we've talked about this even going back a few years now. Like, Shaq, I think, is the best comp to Giannis because of his physical domination and the fact that he, he shouldn't be your closer. Like, he can still be the best, you know, player in the league, if you will, like, you know, Shaq with his MVPs and things like that and, and finals MVPs, that that doesn't mean he has to take every shot in the last two minutes of a game. Like, other guys can fill that role, and, and Kobe did, and we saw what he became, and Chris Middleton has, and, and is he good enough to be that guy on a championship team? Well, he's got to do it two more times, right, over the next week. And so, yeah, I, I just – People get so caught up on that, right? It's 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 very similar to the LeBron narrative, right? When he was he was making passes, late game situation, and people would get mad at him for not shooting against the double team when he hit a wide open guy for a short corner three or something like that. It's like, you know, ba basketball can be a little more team oriented than that, right? As much as it's usually the best team with the best guy is, you know, that's that's the team that comes out on top at the end of the day in these seven game NBA series. Like that, that, that he doesn't have to take every single shot down the stretch and sometimes it works out but but yeah especially a guy like Giannis right where he's he's his game is a little further extended than Shaq for sure but he's not a guy that's going to beat you one-on-one -on -one. that's not his game like in a half court setting so why why ask him to do something he's not right when you've got a pretty good closer in Chris Middleton like play to your strengths and they, they do that from time to time but yeah it's just it's just a little silly to me I think with with how infatuated and how stuck we get as sort of a a fandom and, and just the basketball Illuminati out there. It's like, no, the best guy, you got to take the shot. Or he's not good as Michael. He's not good as, you know, all these other guys. It's like, well, you know, 
Magic took a few late shots, but it isn't necessarily <laughs> his game, right? It's like, you know, these, these guys don't have to do that every single time. It's that weird Jordan revisionist history, right? Jordan took every last shot and he made every one <laughs> and never lost ever. And it's like, okay, uh, that's, that's, not, that's not really the case. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to mean if you're the best player on a team that you have to be the guy with the ball in your hands. Uh, remember Kyrie Irving, that game we mentioned with that fantastic yeah. block that'll be remembered yeah. forever that altered the history of the Cleveland Cavs. Kyrie Irving was the one that hit the go-ahead shot, the game winner. So uh, there you go, another uh, case-closed point. I would say. Uh, to that end, you know, the comparison between Giannis and Shaq, I actually think it probably behooves the Bucks to use Giannis a little more like Shaq offensively. Mm-hmm. You know, he likes to face up and, you know, he does have an incredible ability uh, off the dribble to get to the rack, but he's also pretty darn dominant as we have seen when he gets the ball on the block, down low, in the paint, even with a guy like Aiton guarding him. Uh, I almost feel like they should exploit that even more and kind of go a little old school with Giannis, maybe play him in the post a little more like Shaq and see where that leads them. That could actually work in their favor, especially on the road. All right, so let's move on. And we've got the Major League Baseball draft that went down this past week. Uh, had five players with Hawaii ties who got selected, including UH starter and ace Aaron Davenport. He gets scooped up in the sixth round by the Cleveland Indians. A really cool story is Dylan Spain, who opted out, uh, remember, of the COVID season because he wanted to work on his velocity and and work on his uh, physical uh, capabilities. And so he is a pitcher out of St. Louis, went to University of Hawaii Hilo, uh, and he was able to increase his velocity working at tactical strength and conditioning, primed himself into being a legitimate prospect. And he gets picked up in the 10th round by the Atlanta Braves. A couple other guys to mention, obviously, Kobe Kato, uh, IAEA grad from Arizona, played in the uh, College World Series uh, this past season. He was scooped up in the 13th round by the Astros. You had Mid-Pacific alum Wyatt Young out of Pepperdine, 15th rounder to my Mets. That's pretty cool. Hunter Bolt, uh, Kamehameha Kapalama alum, went to Oregon. He gets uh, picked in the 20th round by the A's. And another little side note, Cade Halemanu, a University of Hawaii pitcher who kind of saw his stock skyrocket as the season went on because of his velocity increase during the year. Uh, He went undrafted. And so he's actually set to return to the University of Hawaii next season, which is good news uh, for Rich Hill and that uh, new regime over there in Manoa. But what was your take? What was sort of the the bigger standout storylines in your mind from this Major League Baseball draft? Yeah, I think Dylan Spain, right? Uh, we've seen a few guys, right? Whether uh, Rico Garcia, I mean, the, the Pac West, especially the Hawaii Pac West school, that's good baseball, right? It's good baseball in Hawaii. We know that. And some of these guys who, you know, maybe mainland wasn't in the cards, University of Hawaii at Manoa wasn't necessarily a, a destination. Some of these guys that are really good high school players that, that take the time to develop, and, and Dylan Spain is another one of those guys, I think, that ends up in Hilo takes the year and kind of uses that as a way to, to kind of reset a little bit and increase the velocity. And then he is a 10th round pick, right? That's, that's pretty darn good for anybody, let alone a, a guy coming out of the division two college team. And then Kobe Kato, I think is another really intriguing guy who, who, um, you know, I remember from his days at IA, obviously playing for his dad, Ryan, and I actually got to call a lot of his games, football and baseball when he was the quarterback um, there for his high school. And, and always thought, you know, he, he, he had a little something to him. He, had, he was a really good hitter um, and, and took a leap, I think, you know, and, and maybe a little under-recruited, but decided, hey, he was going to try and go play Pac-12 baseball right at Arizona and, and turned himself into a 13th-round draft pick. And for an organization in Houston, for as 
much as we like to bag on the Astros, and deservedly so, in terms of what they've done to you know, maybe circumvent some rules, uh, that front office has been really good at identifying talent. <laughs> I don't think we can deny that as well. You know, they've, they've maximized that talent in ways that maybe um, people didn't <laughs> like. Uh, but it's not, like, it's not like they haven't had a good eye. Uh, and so for, for Kato to end up there in the 13th round, right, that's, that's pretty darn impressive. So I, I'm, I'm excited to see those guys. And then, you know, Young and Broke and, and, um, and some of the other guys that, that we mentioned, Davenport, the, the University of Hawaii pitcher, excited. But, yeah, Kato and Spain were the guys that kind of caught my eye. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Kato had a soundbite. I think Rob DeMello posted it on his uh, Instagram and, and other social media platforms uh, where he said, yeah, you know, the Astros, one thing you have to say about them is that they know how to win. And I just, I had to laugh. I had to laugh because they do. They're a really good organization, uh, but they found other ways to win as well, which were a little bit uh, more um, off the grid, so to speak, uh, and, and against some of the uh, standardized guidelines. But no, uh, more power to, uh, to them for selecting Kobe. He's a heck of a player and had a heck of a season this past year. Uh, I think he was a guy who really made it work in his favor. And yeah, Dylan Spain, that's the standout story for me because, you know, I, I would question a lot of these guys that opted out. If they weren't solid first round type talents, right? Uh, one of the comparisons in the NFL was Pene Sewell, who ends up uh, getting picked up uh, out of Oregon by the Detroit Lions. But we knew he was going to be a top 10 pick, right? And so his opting out last season wasn't that big of a deal, at least in terms of his stock. But a guy like Dylan Spain, I mean, you talk about gambling on yourself, right? Betting on yourself. This is a guy who said, hey, look, you know, it's going to be a weird season. UH Hilo only played HPU, right? Exclusively throughout the year. And so he's saying, hey, look, I'm going to bet on myself here and I'm going to focus on just making myself physically stronger and making myself more of a prototypical prospect in terms of my velocity and it worked man it worked to a T and he gets drafted in the 10th round by another fantastic organization by the way the Atlanta Braves so yeah Dylan Spain that move betting on himself having it pay off uh, that's going to be the highlight for me here in this draft. All right, so we got to talk about this as well. Uh, it is another uh, requirement here in the sports podcasting world. We got to mention Conor McGregor, right? Uh, his loss to Dustin Poirier this past weekend in the UFC main event. This is after his leg broke, was kind of brutal and nasty. We've seen a few of these here uh, over the past year in the UFC. Uh, but it is Conor's second straight loss, both to the same dude. Uh, and so it brings up the question. This was the trilogy fight, right? And some people are suggesting, hey, look, when he comes back, they should fight a fourth time because this win for Poirier wasn't really legitimate. Um, but it brings up the question, I think, because Conor McGregor here, because he's fought so sporadically and intermittently, right, it to me reminds me of the latter stages of Mike Tyson's career where, hey, this guy was phenomenal. He owned the sport, right? He was must-see TV, uh, but things have kind of gotten away from him here and I think he's still able to get pay-per-view purchases he's still able to, to draw eyeballs because he is Conor McGregor and there's always going to be that outside chance that we'll see one of those stereotypical and prototypical knockouts right uh, but it hasn't really happened in a while and it to me begs the question is Conor McGregor still must-see TV what do you think for, for me he's not uh, and it's funny you bring up the Mike Tyson comparison, right? Because I think it's a good one. Um, and it's one that um, Connor made himself, but I think in a much different context, right? He was in the pre-fight press conference leading up last week. He said he was going to make Poirier look like Buster Douglas, right? He was saying Poirier was a complete fluke, a flash in the pan, right? A one-hit wonder. And, and I think, you know, 
Dustin Poirier has proven that he has not, and again proved it last weekend that 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 is just a complete fallacy. But you know that was Connor's that was kind of Connor's talk, right? And it was a much different tune going into this fight than it was last fight. And he just seems like a guy that is trying desperately to remain relevant, right? He turned back into the heel. He started trash talking in ways that, that I think even most people would be like, all right, dude, like this, you're going a little too far here. You start talking about family and, and ending dudes' lives and things like that. It's like, you know, he didn't used to need to do that. He could trash talk with the best of them and still make it entertaining and still make it where you're like, all right, yeah, this guy's got a mouth. But, you know, I think that's why people kind of liked him as well, right? He had a, quite a bit of following, whether you hated him or loved him, but you kind of appreciated his gift for words and how he could go about trash talking. And then he back up that very well in the in the octagon and he he won big fights right and he, he put himself in that position and that that wasn't a fluke but he seems like a guy now who is who is desperate for attention who is just trying to make himself relevant because I think he knows like I think a lot of people have seen he's not quite the fighter he was right and so the only way you're going to get those big fights is kind of resting on your laurels in a way and holding up past accomplishments and and running your mouth right because you got to make yourself marketable in a way and if it isn't because you're a good fighter anymore and you're going to continue to beat these top guys then then you got to kind of muddy the waters a little bit if you will and and stand on that if you will but it's just yeah it wasn't he for me he's not anymore like it's there are so many other big names I think in the UFC which is a credit to the roster that they have put together in different weight classes for sure but yeah he, I just I think it's it's becoming a little too much too much now like it's not it's not what it used to be he's not what it used to be and thus I don't need to fork over my money to watch him every time he steps in the cage yeah it becomes almost a parody act of himself right I mean it, it's mm-hmm. like he it jumped to the shark so to speak uh, because it's it does feel much more manufactured and not as organic as it once did. Uh, and like you said, there are certain lines that are crossed, I think, in some of the ways he is trash-talking and, and, and some of the way he presents himself now. And so the act gets a little tired. Uh, and I don't think that what we have seen in the octagon anymore justifies some of that stuff on the periphery, right? And some of the buildup and the, the would-be hype to the fight. Hey, look, I was watching the thing, man. I was at Buffalo Wild Wings with BMAC and a bunch of our friends after BMAC's uh, Memorial Golf Tournament at Bayview. So we were over there. We were watching it. We were having a grand old time. Um, but we probably wouldn't have ordered it if we were at somebody's house. You know, it just it, you're right. It, it, to me, doesn't quite carry the same weight. And even though this was a weird finish with the broken leg, and now he's coming out today saying that it was broken prior, it was a stress fracture that was actually diagnosed prior to the fight. I don't know what the heck's happening there. Uh, But it still looked as though he was, uh, at that time, going to be short on the scorecards. It looked like Dustin Poirier had the advantage up to that point anyway. Uh, And so the actions in the octagon and the exploits in the octagon uh, no longer really justify the circus that is Conor McGregor outside of the octagon. And so I think when those two things don't vibe, uh, it becomes a pretty tired act. All right, let's get to our interview. We got uh, Kurt Suzuki, uh, of course, a longtime major leaguer out of Baldwin High School. He went to Cal State Fullerton program, ended up winning the College World Series. 
and uh, went on to a fantastic career that's still going in the bigs. And right now he is with the Angels. Of course, he is the primary catcher, has been this season for Shohei Otani, who has become a superstar in the game. And so really, Kurt, in a dugout, uh, when everybody's healthy with maybe the two most talented guys in all of baseball, you could arguably say, Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. We're going to talk to Kurt uh, as to what that's like. Uh, from his perspective and uh, how he's doing here in the latter stages of his fantastic career. So let's uh, play that interview right now. All right, so we're on Zoom here, but it is an audio-only podcast. That said, seeing you on Zoom, bro, you look tan, uh, you look relaxed. Uh, what, what's been happening here this all-star break for you? Oh, just straight-up beach days. Um, <laughs> it's been awesome just being able to not have to go to the field, spending time with the fam and uh, yeah, we had, I think, what, four full days and three of them, we went to the beach. So uh, got a lot of surfing and beach time in for sure. Yeah. So this uh, at, at this juncture of your career, this Southern California lifestyle is uh, working out just fine, huh? Oh, this is just how I thought it, <laughs> how I thought it would be. Uh, it's awesome being able to come home and uh, be with the kids. They don't have to travel. They can, you know, play with their friends that they have in school and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it's been great. That's awesome. Well, you know, one of the things that obviously uh, a lot of people were paying attention to over the course of the All-Star break were the exploits of one of your teammates, Shohei Otani, a guy that you have caught uh, considerably uh, this season uh, when he has been the starting pitcher. Um, to see sort of this phenomenon evolving, right? I mean, uh, to, to have one of your teammates, Mike Trout, be widely considered as, as maybe the best in the game and then for this to now be happening involving another one of your teammates who happens to be Japanese-born and uh, is, is just becoming this, this global sensation. What has it been like from your perspective? Uh, honestly, he's, he's like a creative player. You know, if you want to create that perfect player on the MLB, the show, or whatever, this is the guy you create. I mean, uh, he can throw 100. Uh, he throws strikes. He can hit balls 500 feet. He can, you know, steal 40 bases if he wanted to. Uh, hit 300. I mean, it it really is uh, a special, a special player. And you know, sometimes you forget he's only. I think he's only 26 years old. Um, you, you feel like he's 32 and he's like uh, man amongst boys. I mean, it, it's it really is crazy and it's been so fun to be a part of and so cool to watch. I mean, when he comes up the bat, you almost expect him to hit a homer and and to think that you know Trouts hasn't even been in the lineup for the last two months um you know when they when both of them get together I mean it it could be pretty insane to watch on a nightly basis yeah I think the thing that that stands out to me and, and we'll, we'll get into I think just uh what he's like as a pitcher and certainly for you behind home plate uh, but just watching that home run derby where you have Pete Alonso hitting 35 home runs in the first round or whatever it was. Uh, and then you turn around, you see Shohei Otani, and you didn't make it past the first round. But his bat speed, like just seeing him swing the bat, it is discernibly quicker than some of these other sluggers that were on display in the home run derby. And to be able to, to notice that while he's among that crowd, um, that was pretty mind boggling. Oh, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I think, you know, guys are talking about it, but honestly, this guy hasn't taken BP on the field since spring training. I mean, he tries to conserve his energy, obviously, because he has to pitch every five days. 
So he's just in the cage doing flips before the game, and he goes out his first at bat, hits the ball 480 feet, and you're like, how does he do this? And then, you know, for him to go out to the home run derby after not hitting BP on the field for three and a half months and do what he did was, uh, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, like you said, the bat speed, I seen him hit a ball 99 miles an hour, three inches above the strike zone out for home or 450 feet. I mean, you're just kind of baffled by it. Yeah. Are there moments? I mean, you guys are all professionals, right? You guys have seen some of the best and played with some of the best. Are there moments where, where you or, or guys in the dugout are just like kind of, you kind of just stop and, and say, wow, like, does that actually happen? Like for us watching the game, right? There are moments where your, your jaw drops seeing what he's doing but as a as a as a peer of his does, does do, you, do you find that happening at all yeah I mean I think the 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 part that baffles you is the part that you know the normal the normal baseball fan you know wouldn't catch where everybody watches him throw 100 on the radar gun or hits a ball 450 feet but but the thing that we really look at is running from home to third on a triple I mean, this guy looks like he's not even trying. And he's, I mean, you talk to Mike Trout, and when Mike Trout said, this guy is faster than me, has more power than me, um, you know, you know, it's, it's a special player. And then he goes out on the mound, and, okay, he doesn't have 100 miles an hour because he's a little tired from hitting and playing 20 games in a row. And he goes out there and throws sliders, curveballs, um, you know, locates his fastball. I mean, he's, he's a guy that, I mean, it's, like I said, it's a creative player. It's not even fair. Yeah, and, and you, I would imagine, right, you've got the best seat in the house watching him as a pitcher. Uh, and I would imagine a, a catcher is probably best equipped to sort of put into context what he does, right? Hitting every day and then every fifth day getting ready to go pitch and, and having to put right. together both scouting reports, get in, the, get in the park a little earlier, right, and go through. And we, we've talked to you about your routine and what that is like getting your pitching yes. staff ready while also getting ready to go hit four or five times in a night. Uh, just – can you kind of kind of give us an idea of just how difficult that is of what he is he is doing not only doing but doing at an all star level on both ends? Yeah, I mean, you, can you look at a, a normal starting pitcher? They pitch, and the next day they're like, "Oh, I'm sore. I got to go get a massage. You know, maybe do some cardio, and you know, have three days off." And this guy's going out after the, the day he pitches a hundred pitches. He goes out the next day and hits two homers. And he's stealing bases, and and he does it. He's he's playing every single day, and then it's like, oh, it's my turn to pitch. Okay, I'll go out there and throw seven innings. Shut shut out baseball. And um, you know, as a position player playing every day, you realize the grind on the body, especially with him. He gets on base. He steals bases. He's constantly running around, uh, let alone pitching. And for us, playing every day is it's a grind on your body. And this guy is going every day. And then every fifth day, he's going to the mound and pitching a game. I mean, you can't, you can't really put into context. You're, we always say if he focused on pitching, he'd be the best pitcher in the league. And if, it, if he focused on hitting, he'd be the best hitter in the league. So, I mean, now it's kind of like, hey, I just want to do both because I want to play around with this. And it's, it really is. It's incredible. He still might be the best hitter in the league by the end of this season. That's how crazy this is. Do you, yes. do you think it's sustainable? Can he be a starting pitcher and an everyday player in the lineup? Do you, do you think that is a, a recipe that can take place over, like, multiple years? You know, if, if he's a guy if, – if, if anybody can do it, he's a guy that can do it. I mean, this guy's athletic as can be. Um, 
the game almost comes easy to him. I mean, there's times where he goes over four and four strikeouts. Yeah, it, it happens. It's baseball. You know, the game humbles you. The other players are, you know, are good pitchers and players as well. But at the same time, we uh, we always joke around. We say these guys, this guy's just playing around with his kids. Like he's just he's just out there, you know, joking around. Like if he wanted to, he could go out there and throw a hundred the whole game and strike everybody out. But he's like, hey, I want to throw sliders and curveballs and mess around and and I got to save my energy because I got to go hit a homer, you know. So you know, like we say, this guy is 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 almost just kind of toying with it, saying I want to do both because you know I love doing both, but. Um, if he wanted to, he could be the best at either either one that he wanted to be. You know, Stephen A. Smith got into a little bit of hot water because he was questioning whether a guy like Shohei could be the mega star that it, it looks like he's becoming. Uh, because he's a guy who uses an interpreter in interviews, he does speak some English, but like a lot of uh, international players, you know, doesn't want to be misinterpreted literally uh, in those kinds of, of forums. And uh, Stephen A. got into some, some, some hot water with that, had to issue an apology. Uh, I'd imagine from what you see on a nearly daily basis, the reaction to this guy, um, I would assume you're thinking there's no problem, interpreter or not, with this guy becoming – possibly the face of baseball because of of that kind of start oh it's 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 no i mean this this guy is so respectful to the game he 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 plays the game the right way he he just everything that is about him his smile that he does in the field let alone his potential that he brings to the field each and every night that he could hit a homer and throw seven seven shutout innings you know um there's, there's no reason why he can't be the face of the franchise or the, the game of baseball. I mean, I think he, he uses an interpreter just because you said, like, he doesn't want to be misinterpreted. I mean, imagine us going to Japan and, and playing in Japan and not having an interpreter. Um, you know, how hard that would be. And for him to, to change and come to Southern California, be in a different environment, away from his family, not speaking the language of fluently, uh, doing that, I honestly think he he has an interpreter, so he doesn't have to to do interviews with with somebody like that. You know, he's like, oh, I don't I don't speak English. Uh, I'm good. I, I can't do an interview with you. I think he just he has an interpreter, so he's like, ah, I don't want to speak to this guy. So let's move on. <laughs> What's it just been like working with him in in that battery uh, type of dynamic? Uh, you know the communication, um, the, the chemistry. I mean, you've been the guy predominantly behind home plate uh, when he's been the starting pitcher. What's that working relationship been like? It's, it's great. He's really smart. I mean, this guy is constantly making adjustments. You know, he'll come into the dugout and he'll speak to me and he'll tell me what he wants to do or, oh, my split finger is not good tonight. You know, let's throw my slider. Oh, my slider's not good. Let's throw my cutter. Uh, maybe mixing some curveballs. I mean, he watches these hitters, and he's not out there just throwing, you know, the ball 100 miles an hour. This guy actually reads swings. He watches how he feels and how the ball's coming out of his hand. I mean, he he really has the intelligence to go along with the with the obviously the athleticism and the talent is 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 pretty great. Yeah, um, you know, you hear five-tool players, right? That, that's sort of always the concept. He's like a six-tool player because of that starting pitching facet. So, uh, yeah, phenomenon indeed, for sure. Uh, and it's pretty cool to see you juxtaposed to that and being a part of that uh, as, as this thing plays out. This is year, what, 15 now 15, for you? Yes. 
My goodness, man, that is pretty incredible. Have you been thinking about that at all? Has that crossed your mind? I mean, we ask you this probably every single time we talk to you. Yeah, I, I think about it. I mean, um, I, I definitely see it because my daughter's 10 years old. You know, she just turned 10. and she's <laughs> Yeah, they're been surfing this, now. <laughs> yeah, they're surfing. They're, they're all going to be, you know, in the same school this coming fall. And, and um, you know, I definitely think about it. And, you know, definitely both ways. You know, I think about how blessed I am to, to be able to put on a major league uniform for 15 years. But also, you know, kind of sad on, you know, what I've missed for the last 10 years, you know, of the kids' lives and, and doing that. So being able to be at home you know, helps a lot, you know, playing in Southern California definitely helps. I, I, I can't, I be, I'm able to catch a lot of things and, and things like that. But, you know, there's things that cross my mind 15 years, you know, that's long enough guys are saying, Oh, you know, you want to play as long as you can. But, you know, I think to myself, do I really want to play as long <laughs> as I can? Like, do I want to play 20 years? I don't know if I do, but um, my son, my middle one, Kai, he always tells me, yeah, you're not retiring dad. You're playing, you know, I want to go to the field. I was like, so he definitely wants me to play, but uh, we'll see how this body holds up. Yeah, and, and I would imagine, you know, it, maybe being a little closer to home, playing in, in Orange County, has that rejuvenated some of the the passion for going through the grind a little bit? Has it, has it been a little uh, healing in a sense? It, it really has, you know, being able to see my kids every day. And, and I think the fact of when I'm going on the road, I know my family's at home with their classmates, with their friends, my wife's with her friends. And I think having that comfort, knowing that where if I'm in Washington and, you know, I go on the road there, you know, in Washington for 10 days, kind of finding things to do. We're here. They got a lot of things to do. So I think it gives me a lot of comfort that way. Um, you know, being in Southern California now, it's like, hey, could I play another year in Southern California? Do I want to do that? But uh, we'll see how it plays out. Um, you know, at the end of the year, we'll kind of reevaluate and see where I'm at and where my family's at and make a decision. Yeah, well, what's what's the clubhouse been like? New new, new start again for you here with the Angels. Uh, what what is what has sort of been your your feeling with with this group and where you guys can go? Oh, it's a great group of guys. You know, not have I mean, you know, Rendon's kind of been on and off the injured list. You know, Upton's been on and off the injured list. Trout obviously been out for two and a half months. Um, you talk about three of the main guys in our lineup being hurt for, you know, parts of half of the year. I mean, that's a big thing to fill in for us being, you know, one game over, um, you know, four or five, five and a half games out of the wild card or whatever, something like that it is. I mean, we feel like we're in striking distance. Um, obviously coming out of the all-star break, you know, these first 10 games or so is going to really dictate, how you know we go about it but as players we confident man we feel like we can go out there and make a run for this thing and you know we got a great clubhouse keep it young uh keep it loose and and see what happens you know just kind of play every single day and have fun with it and see see where we're at is there an expectation that you guys will be a little healthier will you be do you see yourselves being fully loaded here at, at any point as you go down the second half of the season yeah, we're hoping. I mean, um, with uh, Rendon and Upton, you know, they're they're kind of dealing with some things that, you know, they're still getting tests on and things like that. But, you know, Trouty, Trouty's coming back here soon, and he was hitting and, you know, watching this guy. He hasn't hit baseball in two months, and he goes out there on the pitching machine on the field, and he, he probably hits 20 out of 30 balls over the fence. And you're going, God, this guy's unbelievable. I mean, <laughs> what would it be like if we had this guy in the lineup every day? 
you know, how, how, where would we be right now? But uh, he should be back soon. And, and I think, you know, we just got Adam Eaton, you know, he got designated by the White Sox and he came on, bring some veteran presence, you know, obviously teammates in Washington on a world series run. So uh, I think having him was going to help us a lot. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, it, we'll go as far as our pitching kind of takes us, um, you know, we can score runs, but you know, we, we also got to prevent runs, run prevention. So uh, we'll see with the second half. It, it'll be fun. Interesting. Yeah, it definitely will. And, and I think, you know, just the, the guys that you're mentioning uh, with that veteranship and, and, you know, you and Rendon very recently going through the trials and tribulations en route to a championship. Um, you know, th- I, I think you guys understand a little about what it takes and, and what the team, the, the calibration process that the team has to go through to get there. Yeah. Um, you know, with this team really feels like kind of the reminiscence a little bit about that 19 team in Washington, obviously not having Scherzer, Strasburg and Corbin and Anibal Sanchez, a little different, but you know, at the same time, it shows you all you need is an opportunity. You need that wild card berth, the set, the, you know, wild card team to, to kind of, get into the playoffs and see what happens. You know, you never know. We, we took down the Dodgers who everybody said, Oh, they're guaranteed to go to the world series and we beat them, you know, in the first round. So um, we just need an opportunity and whoever's playing the best baseball, as you know, and you've seen whoever plays the best baseball in the postseason is going to win. I mean, there's times during the season where, you know, the last place team beats, you know, the first place team, you know, in a series and Hey, you never know. Yeah. I, I, Talk to me about Joe Madden. What, what's it like to play for him? I mean, he, he's a guy that'll is liable to do just about anything. He'll put a pitcher in left field late in the game if he needs to. He'll 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 pull all kinds of switches. He, he's kind of an interesting guy. I'm a Cubs fan, so I, I've uh, you know got a chance to watch him uh, kind of up close and personal. I, I just loved how outside the box he was. But what's it like to play for him? You got he's very outside the box. You know, he's he's trying to think. He's trying to think like. I guess something that nobody ever wants to do, but thought about it before he'll, he's a guy that would do it. You know, he's not afraid of, Oh, what's this guy doing? Nobody's ever done that before. He wants to be that guy to do something different and, and kind of, I guess you can say recreate, you know, uh, a type of situation or the way you're going to run into a situation. He wants that. He wants that. And he, lo- I think he thrives on that. He doesn't care what people say. He doesn't care about the outside noise. He just wants to do things to help us win. And I think that's what I really love about him is, is he does anything to help us win, literally anything. You know, he'll put, like you said, he'll put a pitcher in right field, uh, bring a reliever in to throw the three batters and bring the, right, the pitcher back in from right field to finish the game. I mean, he thinks of things like that, and he'll do it if he thinks it'll help the team win. And, and as a player, that's all you ask for is, is you do whatever it takes to win. And I think as a player, you, you really love that. Yeah, and as a guy, as you know, one of the, the field generals, if you will, as a catcher, do you have to kind of – do you find yourself trying to get in tune with his thinking, right? Or do you find yourself thinking about um, different things a little differently? Yeah, the great thing about him is he has a reason for everything that he does. Whenever he does something, he'll come and he'll tell you why he did it or, you know, he'll come and make a pitching change and you kind of go, why did he make that pitching change? He'll come out to the mound and say, yeah, this is the reason why I did this and this. And you're like, all right. Sounds good to me. Let's go. So he has a reason behind every move that he makes. It might not be the most, um, you know, obvious reason to the, the general public, but to a baseball player, you kind of think about it and you're saying, oh, okay, I, I kind of get why you did that. You know, let's see if it works. 
But, um, you know, he, it's been great. He keeps the clubhouse loose. He's, he's fun to be around. It, it's awesome. You know, what's really cool is this um, – your career has gone through – this this really changing of the guard in baseball not just in terms of stars but even the way the game is played like you have seen and played through this this sort of revolution where you know the the game is played a certain way uh, whether it be with some of the influence of defensive shifts just the 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 targeting of trying to hit home runs and and the intent behind that now to pitchers everywhere throwing 100 mile an hour fastballs uh, and crazy crazy spin rate curveballs and sliders and and all this stuff um what do you think about the current state of the game the way the game is played there there have been some people who have criticized it you know they're the home run lovers are, are probably loving it every night at the ballpark uh but what is your take as a veteran guy in the bigs uh, of the way the game is played right now um you know, I, coming up in both levels, I mean, or both parts of the game, you can kind of see, I mean, the old school mentality where, you know, you respect the, the game, respect the, the opponent and things like that. And now it's kind of turned into, hey, let the kids play. You know, guys are taking air selfies coming around first base and, <laughs> and doing all these things and, and things like that. And, um, you know, obviously – you know, that's just kind of where the game's trending. And, and as a as a player that's seen both parts of it, parts of me, you have to adapt to the game. You know, you have to adapt to that. And and kind of, if you want to stay in this game long enough, you have to be okay with it. And, um, you know, I'm not saying I'm okay with guys doing, taking selfies and showing up the picture and, and things like that. You know, that's definitely, that's not how I would do it. I mean, I'm not, you know, guys can do whatever they want. That's not how I would do it. And that's, never how I would do it or teach it but um hey you know like they say let these kids play have fun and um you know I think there'd be a lot more hit batsmen uh if they if that was happening 10 years ago or 12 years ago but uh you know I think guys are kind of accepting it now and and a hitter does that you know you better expect when the pitcher punches you out the next time you're going to see some antics on the mound so I think it's a little you know back and forth kind of thing which hey if if nobody gets bitter you know, towards the other person doing it to you, um, then why not? You know, if you want to show me up, then when I strike you out, I'm going to show you up too. So uh, it makes it fun because you see all these weird things going on and guys doing these silly things. But um, I guess it's entertainment for the fans, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, without a doubt, uh, some of these young guys are, are quite a lot. Uh, what's your? I, I just have one more, Kurt. What, what's kind of your feeling on uh, – there seems to be a little bit more momentum – from Major League Baseball to look at whether it's stemming shifts or, or things like that requiring right two infielders in each side of the second base bag. Rod Manfred kind of talked a little bit about it at last week or this past week's All-Star game. Do you think that's necessary? Is the game to a point where they need to start regulating how teams shift and play defense or, or do you think it'll kind of just work itself out? Yeah, I think, you know, I think guys are, you know, I think it'll work itself out. You know, I think with the whole shift thing, for me, if a team wants to do that, then, you know, let them do that because there's some games where teams shift and they get burned and they lose the game, you know, and I think that's that's on the team if they want to shift and, um, you know, that's the way they think they're going to win the ball game, then then more power to you. Like, go ahead and do that. I think regulating that, and I, I think that's kind of putting your hand on too many things and, you know, starting to try to control everything where, 
hey, this is a game. If they want to do that, they can do it and and whatnot. I think, you know, the game evens out where, you know, when I came up, guys are throwing 88 to 90, learning how to pitch, you know, locate the ball. And, and now guys are throwing as hard as they can, you know, throwing the ball 100 miles an hour, not knowing where it's going. But now with the whole regulation on the sticky stuff, I think you might see it go back to 88 to 90 guys learning how to pitch again because without that sticky stuff, there's not as much carry. And as you guys know that you play baseball, you don't have that carry and you pitch up in the zone, those balls usually don't come back. So, you know, I think there's going to be a little bit of trend the other way. And I think speed and defense are going to really come back into play where, you know, it was about how many homers can you hit now? I think it's speed and defense and, and doing the little things to help the team win. So I think, Baseball always, you know, kind of goes like this and it always kind of comes back, you know, the trend comes back to where it was 10 years ago or whatnot, however long ago, but you'll see it come back, I think. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the the sticky stuff, the the spider tack and some of these other concoctions that pitchers have used. And uh, there have been mixed reviews and reactions from the players. Pete Alonzo, who we mentioned, the home run winner, uh, home run derby champion two times, uh, he said that he would prefer the pitcher having a little bit more control on the grip if they're going to be throwing in the upwards of 100-mile-an-hour fastballs in the upper portion of the zone. Uh, what is your experience with that, and, and what was your stance on baseball mid-season, by the way, making the determination to try to crack down on that stuff? Yeah, I think I, think, I personally think they went a little overboard by banning it completely. You know, I think I think – yeah, you know, when I came up, guys are using sunscreen and rosin to get a little bit of sticky. That's not going to increase your spin rate, you know, 500 RPMs. You know, it's going to let you get a little grip on the ball. You're not going to lose one and hit somebody, you know, in the head or, or just hit somebody in general. You know, it gives you a little bit of tack. And, and as a hitter, you know, we, we're okay with that. Or a little pine tar, you know, they get a little bit on their fingers. But when you start getting to these scientific concoctions and these scientific <laughs> sticky stuff and – and it's not just about sticky anymore. It's about increasing your RPMs, making your pitches like a wiffle ball pitch. And I think that's where you kind of, you kind of, you know, get a little bit out of hand and, and then you're going to have to re retract it a little bit. But I think for them to completely ban, you know, any type of, of tack or sunscreen and rosin, I mean, you know, that might be for me taking a little bit too far mid season. I could see maybe if you want to do something like that in the off season. Yeah. But I think you got to take, give pitchers a little bit of something. I mean, you know, just a little bit of sticky, you know, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't want to get hit in the head, you know, of course. But, I mean, as a pitcher too, I mean, you got to have a little bit of, of stickiness. You know, the ball's not really sticky itself, you know. So to have a little bit of something helps. But that spider tack or whatever concoctions these guys are making, I mean, that's just unfair. You know, the wiffle balls are coming out. And you know how hard <laughs> it is to hit a wiffle ball slider. So it's tough for sure. Uh, good stuff, Kurt. Hey, man, we appreciate you spending so much time with us. We know that you got to uh, get to the kiddos. They're surfing over there. Uh, so uh, I'll let you do the daddy thing. But, hey, always appreciate you being accessible to us and, and giving us some time. Uh, we've been following you and, and, and rooting you on this entire way. So uh, keep doing what you do, bro. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for the support. I always love chatting. It's always good talking story for sure. All right. Thanks once again to Kurt Suzuki. Always a pleasure catching up. All right. Let's get to our post game. And best and worst, brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii, Maui's premier full-service refuse company, offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll-off containers for commercial construction and residential use. Family-owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community, Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. 
Visit wastebrohawaii.com for services information. All right, let's get started with our bests. And I'll go first, Georgia Tech pitcher Andy Archer joining the UH baseball program as a grad transfer. And this guy checks the boxes as far as prototypical college pitchers. 6'5", 225-pound right-hander. He averaged 13 strikeouts per nine innings in 2020. Pitched in an NCAA regional this past season. Uh, so Rich Hill and company are bringing over a guy who uh, has a pretty strong resume and a pretty strong arm from the sound of it. And uh, hey, 6'5", standing on the mound, that always looks good. Yeah, I mean, that's those are the guys that get a, an extra look, right? Uh, when you're going to scout a game or something like that. If, if some dude's 6'5", 225 with that kind of arm and that kind of strikeout ratio, um, that you want those guys in your team. <laughs> At the very least. So that's a big get. That's a big get for, uh, for Rich Hill. He's getting some other transfers as well with the Hawaii ties that I'm sure we'll get into as we get closer to the season. So, no, I, I like what the, the momentum that the program is building. Yeah, and the official announcement, Dave Nakama uh, joining the yeah. uh, program as well as an assistant. Uh, he has been a head coach at several stops uh, including San Jose State, most recently was with the Washington program. Uh, and so he comes down to UH after really being on the mainland for like I don't know, 40 years, and now he's able to finally come home. So that's a pretty cool story right there uh, as Nakama joins the staff. All right, what's your best, Jordan? Yeah, my, my best. Um, MLB All-Star Weekend, always fun. Uh, the celebrity games, right, whether it's the NBA celebrity game or the celebrity softball game uh, in Major League Baseball, they edit it to like an hour, so it's pretty enjoyable watching. It was on after the home run derby the other night. Uh, but it was called by Tim Kirchin and his son, uh, who's like a, a radio personality. He does some morning shows, I think, in the, the Cincinnati or Cleveland area, his son Jeff, uh, doing play-by-play. But Tim Kirkshin, right, has become almost a caricature at times, and he plays that up. Like, he loves that fact, right, it's, whether it's Scott Van Pelt or Dan Levitard over the years. And just watching him marvel, I don't know if that's the right word, but him be so amused at these celebrities' attempt to play softball <laughs> It was more entertaining than almost anything I saw over All-Star Weekend in Major League Baseball. Like, watching him, you know, I had celebrities like Anthony Mackie's out there, right? He's a Marvel superhero. You had, like, Kane Brown, the country singer, Karamo Brown from Queer Eye, uh, JoJo Siwa, like, TikTok stars. And there were dudes, like, trying to catch balls. Like, they discarded their glove, and they tried to catch balls barehanded. And just watching Tim Kirkshin try to process what these people are processing as celebrities who are out there in front of millions of people trying to play softball. It's, it's, it was quite enjoyable. Uh, DK Metcalf Kirk. struck out twice, too, in that game, didn't he? DK Metcalf struck out twice. Uh, <laughs> Jojo Siwa is apparently a really good soccer, uh, softball player. Um, Jorge Masvidal was in the game, and he is not that great with, you know, ball and, ball and bat sports, but he would knock any of us out. Um, so, it was, yeah, it's, it's always enjoyable watching these people try and do athletic feats that they are not used to, but watching Tim Kirkshin just, just bust laugh, <laughs> trying to watch these people play softball, baseball, was, uh, was quite enjoyable. Classic Kirkjian. And by the way, he and his son sound so similar. Like their voices oh, yeah. are, it's amazing. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's get over to uh, the worst side. And uh, now Stephen A. Smith very well could have been my worst. Uh, he deserves to be the worst many an occasion. He has been a worst, I think, many an occasion on this podcast. Think of me every week. <laughs> we did talk a little bit about it with Kurt. So uh, I will actually slide the target and the crosshairs of my worst for this week. Uh, at Bryson DeChambeau, who threw his Cobra driver under the bus. Yeah, after the first round of the British Open, he said his driver, quote, sucks after hitting only four fairways. One Cobra rep actually went public and said that uh, the comments made by Bryson DeChambeau were, quote, 
stupid. This comes just like a couple of weeks after Bryson DeChambeau fired his caddy. I don't know what's going on with this guy, but he was also featured in the match, right, where he was pitted against Phil Mickelson. Uh, Phil Mickelson was teamed with Tom Brady, and DeChambeau was teamed with Aaron Rodgers, and Aaron Rodgers played, like, better than Bryson DeChambeau somehow in that round. Uh, but, you know, everyone's making all these witty comments, and, and you know, there's especially Phil Mickelson is just really clever and really fun and just seems really likable. Uh, and Bryson DeChambeau was not. Like, nothing he said was really that clever. He just doesn't come across as a guy that you'd want to really hang out with. Uh, and then to take the sponsorship that is paying you money to use their gear, and you're just going to absolutely obliterate potentially that entire relationship in one soundbite. Uh, I would understand if Cobra decided to just cut ties with the dude. Uh, that's my worst. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. They, the, the co one of the Cobra reps was like, no, 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 no. Right? Like, they, come on. Come on, you're swinging five-degree loft, which is insane, right, yeah. on his driver. And he's swinging, like, 240 miles an hour. Like, like sorry. Like, who? What technology? Right? And it's like all of us everyday golfers like, oh, yeah, sorry, Bryson. Sorry your drive doesn't go straight every time. Like, neither does mine. And do I blame my driver? Yeah. But I don't have a team of scientists <laughs> trying to make this work. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like I feel like every average Joe weekend warrior golfer – just has to roll their eyes, right? And it's just like, give me a break, yeah. dude. How about you just maybe dial it back a little bit? Maybe just get it anywhere near the fairway. And and maybe just have some fun. Like, lighten up a little bit. I know. Why is everything so serious? Yeah. I'm, right? I'm, and I get it. He's the robot, right? He's Everything is science. Everything is calculated. Every... Every um, every club is the same length, right? And he's he's thought everything through, and like maybe that's just how he is. Like that's how he's wired. Like he can't turn the analytical side off. But man, he just it just he doesn't seem like he's very fun to be around either. So it's yeah, like, come on, come on. All these dudes are crazy competitive and all these guys are focused down to the groove on the club face. And like these guys are thinking about their equipment and they're thinking about how to optimal you know optimize their game and maximize their game every second of every day and so i don't feel like bryson is any different from any of them right maybe he's a little <laughs> more eccentric about it he's a little more scientific quote unquote about it but competitively it's not like he's more competitive than anybody else everybody else has to do all of the same things and so when he has a quote like oh yeah i just need to get this driver right uh because it's it's not working for me especially on the mishits and i'm like well maybe you should try to have fewer mishits as you know the professional golfer that you are yeah it, it's crazy stuff so uh, yeah easy fodder for us here on the worst side of things bryson DeChambeau. uh what's your worst yeah, my worst. I only go from this direction because I couldn't, I, I couldn't fit two bests in. Uh, but I'm going worst Greg Hardy because Tai Tuivasa <laughs> is my favorite fighter. Oh, man. How great is Tai? The dude walked out to Spice Girls and then he put Greg Hardy on his backside and made him go to sleep for a little while. Like that is the all. Oh, that was the highlight. You talk about must-see fighters? Give me Tai Tuivasa. The hell with the Conor McGregor. And forget about Greg Hardy, right? Like, they, I think everybody's like, all right, yeah, this is this is great. Anytime Greg Hardy gets a little bit of humble pie, we're all for it. But being, like, tied to Ivasa, right, he's like a Polynesian guy. Yeah, yeah. He's coming out to Spice Girls, like, wannabe. Like, there, he has no cares, right? Like, there's no way you could tell that man anything. He's got to be one of the most self-confident dudes ever. Uh, and then he went and knocked out Greg Hardy. Like, there's the, is there any coming back for Greg Hardy? 
Uh, I hope not. By a guy who, he just got knocked out by a guy who came out to Spice Girls. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 hope, I, I hope not either. Exactly. But like, yeah. that was, oh man, that was highlight, highlight of the card. I, I'm here to see Greg Hardy get knocked out. I'm also here to see him basically just kind of disappear because he's done a lot of bad stuff and always gets another opportunity, whether it be in the NFL or whether it be in the UFC. Uh, and I'm kind of tired of seeing that. So uh, yeah, I was all on board the Tuivasa train as well. There's another timeline where he would be a professional wrestler, right? Like in the WWE, oh, yeah. like absolutely. Oh, yeah. he fits plus, the bill. Plus, plus he looks a lot closer to what I look like with my shirt off than anybody else <laughs> in the UFC. And so it's like, Ty is my, he did a shoey afterward. Oh man. Yeah, oh, just chugged a beer out of a shoe. It was, oh, That's he, unreal. He, I need him on every card. Every oh, card. man. That's the bumper sticker right there. That's the shirt that they sell at the UFC events. Ty is my guy. That's, that's, that's the one. Yep. Bingo. You, better, you, you better copyright that, my friend. I should. Yeah, I need to get him <laughs> on the horn. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for us. That's our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii. Maui owned, Maui operated for Maui's people. And one of those Maui people, we want to thank him for joining the show, Kurt Suzuki. That uh, was always, uh, that was a blast talking with him for sure. Hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helley, at TalkSports808. And Jordan, we shall do it again soon, my man. See you, bud. <laughs>